With confidence in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Welcome to Marching Orders, a this week community news podcast series devoted to Central Ohio military veterans sharing their experiences. I'm Scott Hummel, and I want to thank this week reporter Kevin Corvo for filling in on a recent podcast interview with World War II veteran Wally Cash of Hilliard. You can check out that interview and profile at thisweeknews.com slash marching orders. Thanks, Mr. Corvo, for an outstanding job on that one. Now let's get right to it. Our guest is a U.S. Army Air Corps veteran who served during World War II from 1943 to 1945, having enlisted in December 1942 as an aviation cadet. He was stationed throughout Germany and flew 35 missions, having crash-landed on his 18th mission. His decorations include the Air Medal with Silver Cluster, the Army Good Conduct Medal, the European African Middle Eastern Campaign Medal with three battle stars, the Presidential Unit Citation, and the World War II Victory Medal. He also serves on the Mott's Military Museum Board of Directors. From New Albany, Ohio, Michael Porella, welcome to Marching Orders. Glad to be here. Mike, tell our listeners a little bit about what you're up to these days. You're a widower with a couple of boys, and you work with the Mott's Military Museum. And I understand you're part of the Lucky Bastards Club. So tell me a little bit about those things. Uh Well, where do you want to start? Let's start with uh, your boys and uh, just your family. Yeah. I, I I was married while I was still a sophomore at the University of Pennsylvania back in 47. My wife died in year 2000. We had 54 years. It was a good run. Mm-hmm. I miss her. Uh, I have two sons. Uh, and, of course, at my age, I'm 95. Uh, uh, they are retired also. I live with my son right now. Uh, I lived alone after my wife died, but uh, he dragged me out of a four-bedroom house a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, my uh, son and daughter, I consider her my daughter, uh, we're good friends. It's, so it's a, good, it's a good arrangement. And you're part of the Mott's Military Museum. Tell us a little bit about Mott's. Uh, well, I moved here from Philadelphia uh, around 2002, and I was looking for something to do. And uh, the first thing I did was join the uh, VFW. And uh, one of my buddies there took me over to Mott's Museum one day because I wanted to do something more than just VFW. And uh, I went through the place, and, he, and after about five minutes, I said, sign me up. So I go there every Friday morning, and uh, I'm on the board now. And uh, uh, it, it's just a great place because uh, I meet a lot of new people. Every day, it's a new experience. People from all over the country, all over the world, and particularly uh, young people coming through. Uh, history, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln once said, history isn't history unless it's the truth. And so much of history right now doesn't really address that problem. So uh, uh, the kids uh, uh, coming through uh, ask a lot of questions, and they're uh, like some of the teachers bring their classes in year after year uh, using the curriculum as an adjunct uh, to the museum. The board of directors, uh, we meet once uh, once a month. I don't drive at night, so I'm 
my activity with the board has kind of reduced in recent years. And uh, your good friend and previous Marching Orders guest, Dan Robinson Street, says, I've got to ask you about the Lucky Bastards Club. What is the Lucky Bastards Club? The Lucky Bastard Club is an unofficial 8th Air Force club. Uh, if you complete your tour, which uh, was 35 missions when I was there, it started out at uh, 25 many years uh, when the 8th Air Force first got there in 43. The... Uh, as we got better fighter protection, why uh, uh, Jimmy Doolittle, who was my commanding general, raised the ante a little bit. He raised it first to 30, and then to 35 by D-Day. Now, uh, someone did a study after the war in the Pentagon. Didn't have anything else to do, I guess. And uh, you, know, you know what bureaucracy's like. And uh, uh, he concluded that your chances of getting to that lofty status was about six to eight percent wow yeah god was my co-pilot mm-hmm. no question about it and uh now you had told me you uh, you got to throw out the uh, the first pitch in the columbus clippers game on d-day what was that like how did that go uh it's kind of mediocre i have a bum hip and you know to throw you need your legs in your whole body i only got about halfway to a long plate i'm ready to call in the bullpen <laughs> <laughs> All right, and you grew up in eastern Pennsylvania. You attended Girard College. That's a sort of a college prep school. And Russell Johnson of Gilligan's Island fame is an alumnus there, and he would have been your age. Did you meet the professor from Gilligan's Island? Yeah, Russell Johnson uh, was in – I graduated in June 40. Uh, Russell Johnson graduated uh, the year later, and uh, uh, he went into the service also. He, he was a – a bombardier, I believe, on a B-24 in the South Pacific had a couple of crash landings, from what I understand. And I, he was a nice guy, and uh, my youngest brother was in his youngest brother's class also. Oh, okay. They didn't know he even had a younger brother. Yeah. And uh, you were telling me earlier, before we started recording, about an incident uh, I think your brother had thrown, or was a friend of yours, had thrown something uh, in front of Russell? Well, at Gerard, uh, at our senior class, we wore kind of a distinctive bonner, bonnet. And uh, my brother uh, learned that Russell was at some mall signing signatures. And my brother had his old bonnet from Gerard, and he threw it in front of Russell and had her sign this for us. <laughs> and, of course, Russ did a double take. That's funny. What was it like to attend a school like that? It was a boarding school. Uh, we attended that from an early age. Uh, uh, Stephen Gerard was, uh, well, outside of Philadelphia, I don't think new people know about him, but around Philadelphia, his name is plastered everywhere. There's a Gerard Bank, Gerard Avenue, Gerard, Gerard this and Gerard that. He owned a lot of real estate in downtown Philadelphia. He was a, uh, a, a merchant. He had a fleet of vessels that were in the... Uh, Far Eastern trade, which was very lucrative then. He ended up a U.S. citizen by dodging the British brocade during the Revolutionary War and became a U.S. citizen. And during the War of 1812, he and uh, John Jacob Astor, who were the two richest guys in the country at that time, they subscribed to the entire uh, war bond uh, issue. So they essentially fi- financed the second half of the War of 1812. Mm. He left his fortune largely to establish this school. It was challenged, of course. Uh, and finally, the Supreme Court uh, rendered a decision in the, in the will's favor. It was interesting to have the 
opposing uh, lawyer at that time was Daniel Webster with the silver tongue. Mm-hmm. So Daniel got beaten by that uh, case. When I went to school there, there were about 1,600 students. It was kind of a godsend for the uh, uh, mothers at the time. His will was kind of controversial. Uh, he specified that, uh, that the school catered to poor white male orphans. And, of course, in the 60s, that phrase white became a, a very controversial thing, and the will was eventually broken, so now the school is is pretty much open to all students. But uh, I got the first-class education there. My high school education was college prep in the morning and uh, a vocational in the in the uh, after in the afternoon. So uh, some of my classmates took all sorts of vocational: carpentry, electrical, uh, a printing, and uh, the philosophy was that when you left the school, you could earn a living. It was a school far ahead of its time. And you ended up actually going to the University of Pennsylvania, although that wasn't right after school. You would go to the military first. And you actually ended up being a marketing executive in the chemist, chemical industry. But I understand you actually have several patents for uh, lubricants, polymers, uh-huh. fire retardants, that kind of thing. I have a master's degree in chemistry from the University of Pennsylvania. I, I wasn't able to get my Ph.D. because I ran out of money and son number one came along. So... Uh, I, I got a job at a small oil company in northwestern Pennsylvania. They're no longer in existence. I think Sun Oil Company bought them. But it was Kendall Refining Company. They specialized in lubricants. And I was there for about 12 years as a research chemist. In 1953, we, our small research group developed and marketed the first, the very first multigraded oil in the United States. Mm, wow. We changed the whole marketing philosophy. By the end of the year, every oil company had a multi-graded oil. Now, you were you came from a, a military family. Your dad was in the 4th Infantry Division in World War One, and it was actually gas during a campaign in northern France, and that damaged his lungs severely. Both your brothers were in the Navy during World War Two. Your poor mom, did, did she try to talk you out of enlisting? Uh, well, uh, when Pearl Harbor came along, uh, I was... Not eligible. When, uh, when I turned 18, I, I eventually, uh, I saw everybody around me going, so I finally decided uh, I didn't want to go into the Army. I wanted to, you know, flying was very, it was a thing to do back in those days. It was very, Highly a lot of thing. Hot, fun. And uh, uh, so the aviation cadet program uh, interested me. Uh, uh, it was uh it was patterned after West Point plebes because the discipline was pretty harsh, and uh, we uh, we had to toe the mark until we finally started to, to to get into airplanes and start flying a bit. You're listening to marching orders. You were actually 17 when Pearl Harbor took place. Can can you remember uh, how you heard about it? Were you were were you listening to the radio, or did somebody tell you what, what was going through your mind? It was a Sunday afternoon. Uh, I was listening to the uh, pro football game, the New York Giants. I was there in northwestern Pennsylvania and listening to the New York Giants playing at, at the old polo grounds. And uh, all of a sudden, the, uh, the announcer broke in. Well, 
before that, the announcer broke in, you could hear in the background, well, General so-and-so called his office. Well, uh, uh, well, the mayor called his office. And you heard these background things. And then finally the... Uh, you could hear that over the radio? Yeah, you could hear that in the background. And uh, so you knew something was going on. Finally, the announcer came through and he said, uh, announced that the Japanese had bombed Pearl Harbor. And so that was it. And you enlisted in the Army as an aviation cadet in December 42. What really led you to join the military? Was it primary that you wanted to become a pilot? Well, I was interested in flying, as I said. Uh, I wanted to be a pilot. Uh, the aviation cadet program was uh, developed to train about 100,000 pilots a year uh, because... Uh, the future, of course, meant invading Europe, and we also had a lot of uh, air crews required for the Pacific area as well. So 100,000 pilots was the, was the minimum that they were looking for at that time. And you went to basic training in Miami, and it was a bit of a culture shock, right? It, you were small-town northerner guy here in the segregated south. Can you recall the racial climate at that location at that time? Uh, well, Miami, it was Miami Beach, actually. The, uh, the Army had requisitioned all those Art Deco hotels on Collins Avenue, six or eight stories. They had stripped them bare. They were about eight or nine stories high, and uh, we weren't allowed to use the elevators. And we weren't allowed on the beach for about two weeks because they quarantined us. But uh, the uh, basic training was tough. It was regular Army basic training. And from there, uh, I went through uh, various uh, uh, posts throughout the South. Uh, the South was a bit of a culture shock. Uh, the uh, segregation was unknown in the North, you know. Uh, Eastern Pennsylvania, particularly. Uh, Philadelphia did have a mixed population, uh, later found out. But uh, separate drinking fountains and the like were kind of alien to your to your growing up and what you were used to. Yep, and you, and you were at bases in Louisiana, not Louisiana, Louisiana, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, and so it was like that in pretty much all those places? Uh, uh, that's right. I... Uh, uh, I, I soloed at a place called um, uh, Southerfield in America's Georgia. There's a plaque on the front of the base where it was a civilian contract school. And the plaque said, Charles A. Lindbergh learned to fly at this location. So mm. I could put that on my resume. I soloed at the same place Lindy did. That's right. But I don't have it there. <laughs> May 1944, he got orders for England in an immediate assignment to the 8th Air Force and 385th Bomb Group, about 40 miles east of Cambridge, where you stayed in a hut. What were those huts like to stay in there? Uh, uh, our base uh, was called Great Ashfield, uh, and we were quartered in Quonset huts. Now, Quonset was named after a place uh, that the Navy used in, I think it was in Rhode Island or Connecticut. And it was a, a semicircular uh, metal building, housed eight of us. Uh, it was heated with a pot-bellied stove. It never got us warm in England. Uh, matter of fact, Nike Ingenuity came into play. Uh, we went down to the freight line and, and got a lot of used oil. Somebody pilfered a 30-gallon uh, uh, drum. We fastened that to the ceiling, found some copper tubing, got a stopcock, and we established a, an oil drip system. That 
The pot-bellied stove was red hot at times. <laughs> yeah, I imagine. I imagine it did get pretty warm after that. Now, your base right there was at the juncture of two major rail lines, and it was that the Germans often targeted with buzz bombs. What was that like when a bomb would land, and how often did that occur? Uh, the uh, the buzz bombs you're talking about were uh, a thousand pound uh, bomb fashioned to a very crude jet engine, and uh, they were they uh, they weren't precision types of bombs by any stretch. Uh, their precision was very very poor. They were they were really a, a to hopefully knock out something, but to frighten the population. Uh, never did anything against the morale though, and. Uh, our base, I guess, uh, we were hit maybe once or twice. Most of the time, it sounded like a real freight train coming by, a real loud bzzz. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you, you, uh, as long as you could hear that noise, well, you knew we were safe. When when the noise stopped, then it headed for the earth. Loud boom afterwards. And it was a really uh, pretty small um, area, roughly 400 square miles. He had more than 58 Air Force bases a lot of them really close to each other, and individual traffic patterns almost intersected. You had 1,200 bombers, several hundred fighter aircraft assembled, and could form coherent battle lines and formations under harsh conditions. Captain Leslie Lennox, uh, a former B-17 pilot, once noted that it is almost unbelievable that you were able to, to launch hundreds of airplanes in a small airspace, many times in darkness, loaded with bombs, with complete radio silence and no ground control, and to do it day after day with young air crews. How scary was that for you to fly out in conditions like that? First of all, uh, we were young. You know, when you're young, you think you're invincible. Uh, just a few microseconds in combat, and you become very, very humble. The aircraft we flew was a B-17, of course. Great aircraft. Uh, we used to say that the the Army gave us a 75 aluminum long cylinder with a couple of wings on it, four engines, and said, make it work. <laughs> well, by God, we did make it work. We were young. The, our crew was age 18 to 22, just barely out of high school. Uh, our uh, tail gunner uh, was the oldest, 22. He had a degree in accounting from Michigan. Uh, but the rest of us were pretty well young. Best thing to say. We all survived uh, the 35 missions except for the one waist gunner. He was 18. Got, unfortunately, he got married before he went overseas. Mm. So uh, he substituted on another crew, which was... Not unusual at the time, and that crew went down, unfortunately. Mm. So the rest of us did survive. And the 8th Air Force bombed targets, and you had roughly 32 to 36 bombers in a tightly packed formation. Your bombing campaigns were done with extreme precision. Describe a typical bombing mission. Typical bombing mission, uh, we started out uh, about 5 in the morning. Uh, Charger quarters would let us know that we... We were up. We were dedicated to be. We were dedicated to go on the mission. We dressed. Uh, well, I should describe the. Uh, we we had about uh, four or five uh, layers. By the time I put all my clothes on, I looked like the Michelin Man. Hmm. My fighting weight at that time was about 135. By the time I got all those clothes on, with a flak jacket and and a heated suit and a flight uh, coveralls, I probably weighed about 160 pounds. Just barely weighed, waddled around. 
I can't imagine your physical mobility was very good at that time. It was, you just managed to get around. But you, uh, but you have to remember, uh, uh, we were fighting Mother Nature as much as we were fighting the enemy at that time. Yeah, you were flying really high altitudes to 25,000 feet. And your oxygen mask, didn't it get so cold that your oxygen mask had frozen at one point? Uh, well, at one point, yes, it did get frozen. And uh, uh, I did pass out. The flight surgeon told us that without oxygen at that altitude, your life expectancy was about two minutes. So uh, uh, it was essential that uh, you kept track of it. That was one of my duties, actually. And uh, I would get on the intercom and I'd say, navigator to crew, crew check. And within, uh, within 30 seconds, we'd start at the back end. Tail gunner, okay. Waste gunner, okay. Ball turret, okay. Radio, okay. Flight engineer, okay. Flight tech, okay. And so on. And, and we did that every five minutes just to make sure that everybody was ready to do their job when, we, when it was required. Do you remember how you, how you came to or, or when you came to, how far into that? Well, was? there was one time when I asked a bombardier to do the job because I, uh, I had to keep a daily log uh, uh, or uh, a detailed log, I should say, of our mission. And so he got on the, on the horn and he said, bombardier to crew, crew check. Tail gunner, okay. Waste gunners okay, ball turret okay, radio okay, flight engineer okay, flight deck okay. Then there was silence. Hmm. Right away, the pilot, Wally, got on the phone. He said, hey, Jim, Mike didn't answer. Is he okay? Well, Mike wasn't okay. My oxygen mask had frozen because at that altitude, minus 40 and high humidity, you had to constantly press your oxygen mask to keep the ice from forming in it. And I had actually passed out. He uh, quickly jumped over, clamped the oxygen mask on my face. He turned the oxygen valve up to 100%, and so I came through within pretty quick order. Uh, I stood up and just waved to my pilot. I I could wave to to the little turret on top and uh, had a collision, though. Uh, My head was banged up a bit, but no, no big deal. But I was soaked from the waist on down. My body had been shut down. Wow. So it was a close call, but I turned the, my heated suit rheostat up to maximum. Smelled like the, like the, uh, <laughs> like the I seventy one service center for a while there. You are listening to marching orders, Mike. You've flown thirty five missions, and you crash landed on your eighteenth mission. Describe that incident. What had happened that caused the crash landing? Well, the Asian Air Force bombed targets. The RAF bombed at night. They bombed cities. We bombed specific targets. Our mission was to destroy the industrial complex, and we did a pretty good number on that. And uh, the targets, uh, you can just list them off. Uh, but the two big at the top of the list were marshalling yards because the uh, Germans had a great transportation system. The autobahns went the wrong way, but the railroads were... Uh, they covered the, the area exactly the way the battle plans required. Uh, the other was the synthetic oil industry. Germany had no oil indigenously of any consequence, but they had a hell of a lot of coal, lots of coal. And in 1927, uh, their uh, brilliant chemical engineers developed a process where you put powdered coal in the reactor, hydrogen atmosphere, and uh, uh, the catalyst temperature, you broke that coal down into 
high uh, high octane gasoline. Now, if you're a chemist and you on a diagram a molecule of coal, uh, it looks like chicken wire. We call it mm. chicken wire chemistry. Mm. And those six-membered rings are benzene. Benzene is 100 octane gasoline. It's in your darn tank right now. It's part of the gasoline blends that go. So we had to constantly go back to those chemical plants. And there were about, uh, about a dozen, about three or four, though, there were the major ones. The, the big one, the one that had the most, uh, was a place called Merseburg. M-E-R-S-E-B-O-R-G. It's outside of, outside of Leipzig in the eastern part of Germany. When we went there in September, they had 500 flat guns around it. Imagine 500 flat guns around downtown. Well, when we went there in November, it was 1,000 guns. Wow. And so it was inevitable on the bomb run that you're going to get hit, and we did get hit. Uh, the, the bomb run disabled the, uh, the right starboard engine now we flew in 36 plane formations and you stayed with the formation because it had two purposes one was to get the bombs within a thousand foot circle and the other was protection uh, a 36 plane formation uh, brought to bear 420 caliber 50 machine guns mm -hmm. they're nasty weapons and i had my my own responsibility in the front of the nose was for two but uh so we stayed with the formation. Now, the flight plan eventually called us to fly uh, what is over the Ardennes, and then at some point uh, uh, we were to go make a sharp turn uh, to the right to fly over the North Sea because our base was up in the Northwest. Well, the B-17 is a great aircraft, I said. Four engines fly magnificently. They make them work. Yeah, and even three engines will do a good number. Two engines, the pilots have to wrestle the plane a bit, and one engine will bring you home. Mm. But every time you reduce one of those engines, your fuel consumption goes through the roof. So we obviously had a fuel consumption problem. We flew over to Ardennes, and just about the time that the squadron was going to make that right-hand turn, uh, we decided that we weren't going to do it. So I gave the pilot a direct heading for Dover, shortest distance between two points at that time. Mm -hmm. And we didn't want to be over water with no fuel. So uh, we, we, we emptied the plane of everything we could, everything that wasn't nailed down, threw it out. But eventually the pilot called me after the flight deck and he said, uh, well, you know what's going on, Mike, and of course you could hear the engine sputtering. By that time we were bound to about two engines. And, uh, what altitude were you at at this, at this point? Well, uh, at that altitude, I wasn't certain. We were still reasonable altitude. But he said, uh, 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 we're going to have to abandon ship. He said, get everybody in the waist and, when I, and make sure they all snap their chutes on. When I give the signal, I make sure everybody gets out. So uh, I went back. We got everybody to put their chutes on. And pretty soon he rang the bell. And I said, all right, you guys, out, jump. Hmm. Well, they all looked at me, and they said, Sir, we're not going to jump. We're too darn low. We were only about 1,000 feet at that point. Hmm. And jumping out at that point was marginal. 
So uh, I ran back up through the Bombay and I, I said to Wally and to Ed, pilot, go pilot. I said, these guys aren't going to jump her too damn low. You're going to have to do something else. <laughs> and they looked at each other and I said, you're going to have to put this thing down. And they looked at each other and they said, what do you see? And he said, yeah, we can do it. So I ran back and we got all in the crash landing position and uh, Pretty soon I could hear, I stayed on the intercom, I was the only one. We, we were in kind of a fetal position, all crouched together. And uh, pretty soon I heard, well, we're on the base leg, Mike, which meant that they found some place that they could land. And uh, uh, then in a, in a few moments he said, well, now we're on the final approach. Well, it was obvious what was going, we were settling. And pretty soon we came in a, on this freshly plowed beet field in, in uh, Belgium. And uh, wheels up, the ball turret was plowing that thing, dirt flying all over the place. And pretty soon, one of the props dug in and sh sort of studied us around. No fuel left, nothing to burn, we all jumped out. Hmm. Pretty soon, a British, uh, this, this was in British-occupied uh, territory, and it was southwest of Brussels, about 40 miles. So pretty soon, a British uh, tr uh, uh, truck came along. And he took us in uh, Brussels. We reported to uh, the appropriate Air Force guy. He found us a hotel. And we were there for three days. I can't remember a damn thing, but I know we had a hell of a good time. <laughs> <laughs> did anybody get seriously injured or did no, anybody walk away from it? Nobody got injured. We all walked away from it. Pretty soon, about after three days, we were ferried back to our base. It was our 18th mission. It was only halfway through our tour. And, of course, the next mission was, uh, uh, that was about two, well, they gave us a week off. And we went through, uh, went through some R&R &R places. I stay, uh, uh, well, you know, I segregated officers and enlisted men. And, and uh, uh, we officers went to an old uh, manor house outside of Oxford. I stayed in every, Lady Evelyn's room that night. Lady Evelyn wasn't there, though, unfortunately. Uh, but uh, we had to climb back on the horse again. Now, they say in life, time is everything. If we had flown on that same mission uh, three weeks later, we would have been flying right over the bulge, oh, over wow. the Ardennes. It wouldn't mm -hmm. have been a, a... So I'm not quite sure what would have happened to us. Even when you think about the fact that you landed in a freshly plowed field to soften the blow a little bit, I don't know that anybody who crash lands feel like they're fortunate, but given the circumstances, I imagine you probably felt pretty fortunate. Yeah, well, our, our, our plane was scrapped after that, of course. And especially when you consider your unit had the very highest casualty rate. Well, uh, uh, the whole eight Air Force, yes. Since I've been, uh, uh, I have a dog and pony show that I've given about 100 times. Tells all about the 8th Air Force. And when I was doing research on casualties, I was surprised to see that the 8th Air Force had the highest unit casualty rate. I thought the Marines had it hands down. But they're in second place, pretty close. So be it. You're listening to Marching Orders. 1945 came, and you got to get home. What was it like to know your mission was done, that you had survived it, and you just learned that... Um, you were about to go home. Well, it was a big relief, of course. Uh, uh, however, this was uh, February of 45. There was still a war, a hell of a war going on in Europe and, uh, and a real, real nasty thing going on in the Pacific. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
my orders were to you know go home, but I was I was qualified to to get on another plane and go to the Pacific. They wanted me to do that. So you know you had that in the back of your mind, but it was still a big relief to come home. And uh, I spent the next couple of months in Ellington Field in Houston. Went to Brooksville once to a, a course just to pass some time. But fortunately, VJ Day came along and Paul Tebbets and his gang did the number. Incidentally, Paul Tebbets is a, a, a real uh, honored member of our museum. He was on our board of director and great storyteller, wonderful storyteller. One of my favorite movies is The Best Years of Our Lives. It's a 1946 movie about Fred Derry, Homer Parrish, and Al Stevenson, the returning home from World War II. And the movie shows their struggles adjusting to civilian life. Fred, who was um, Dana Andrews' character, he was actually in the 8th Air Force in the movie. His character was, what was it like for you just trying to make that adjustment? Well, I don't want to brag, but we're the greatest generation. I think most of us... When we came home, we said, well, we did our job. Now we got to start our, begin our life all over again. And I think that's the attitude that most of us had. I'm sure there were, I, I was fortunate. I didn't have any major wounds. Uh, didn't have the, uh, you know, some of the aftermaths of combat that a lot of the Marines suffered. And, you know, there was a lot of nasty things went on in the South Pacific that I was glad that I didn't have to go through. So we called it uh, something different than what the physicians call it today. But uh, uh, I, I fortunately was able to avoid it. Do you think about Germany often or have you had a chance to, to make it back there? To Germany? Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> uh, after the war, uh, of course, I, I was with that uh, Kendall refining for about... Uh, about a dozen years, but uh, multi-graded oils, we fool Mother Nature. It's, it's a polymer chemistry trick we use. Mm. And uh, and the major company supplying those polymers was a Rome and Haas company, uh, a, a company that was based in Philadelphia. But the original company was in uh, in Germany, at Darmstadt, Rome GmbH. And uh, it was founded by a brilliant chemist, Dr. Rome. His PhD thesis was on the the polymers of the esters of polymethacrylic acid. In layman's language, that's plexiglass. And uh, so the, the polymers that uh, Roman Haas sold were sort of uh, cousins of that and, and a whole family of that same type of chemistry. And uh, so I got a job with Roman Haas. I traveled the world. Uh, my first job was, was traveling the world, uh, marketing uh, those polymers. But it was a lot of fun because uh, I looked on it as uh, selling technology products sort of came along for the ride. Mm. And that was a good philosophy. And so it was a good good marriage. And uh, eventually I I got tired of changing time zones. So they gave me a job with uh, marketing that on a domestic scale. And that's where I retired from. And Michael, I know a lot of people, a lot of uh, retired military personnel, they, they struggle and some active duty military personnel struggle. What has been the key for you? I mean, just, you know, in your civilian life, what's been the key for you for your happiness and in your well-being? Well, first of all, get married. Marry, marry a good person. And I married a great person. Uh, secondly, uh, do something. Keep your mind busy. Keep your body busy. And, uh, and uh, I joined the BFW in uh, Canal Winchester. It's an unusual. We don't have a 
uh, we don't have a house. We meet uh, at the uh, senior citizen, raise a lot of money and give it all away, but we do a lot of things for the community. And then secondly, uh, you know, keep your mind busy. Uh, just stay active yeah. and be a good citizen. Love the country. First Lieutenant Michael Parrella, thanks for joining us and thank you for your service. And listeners, we want to hear from you. Tell us what you think of marching orders. Email us at online at thisweeknews.com, subject line marching orders. And check out our marching orders section online at thisweeknews.com slash marching orders, where you're going to find profiles of all of our guests and links to these podcasts. And if you're on social media, Michael's not because he has decided he's going to stay off the tech world here. But if you are on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. And everything is at This Week News. For This Week Community News, I'm Scott Hummel. Thanks for listening.